And, uh, and I guess I'll say just a word about, um, study center stuff going into the spring. We will have two director's classes again. Uh, Dr. Horner will teach the second part of his gospels class. So that will go on essentially as it has been this semester with an in-person ver- uh, version of it and then a Zoom version of it. Uh, we have a, um, a Dante reading group that's been going on since the summer when we read the Inferno, the fall, uh, during fall we read Purgatory. And in the spring we'll read, uh, Paradiso. And so if you're at all interested in Dante, uh, that might be uh, something that you might be um, interested in joining in on, even if you haven't uh, been a part of those first two groups. Um, and then we have a, an online reading group as well, a Zoom reading group that will begin in the spring with Alan Jacobs' most recent book, uh, Breaking Bread with the Dead. And that'll begin in January. And then I will be doing um, a director's class as well, but it will be, there won't be a, a Zoom version of it in the same way that there has been this semester. So my class is going to be on the, um, the life and work of Uban Illich, as I think I mentioned here maybe a couple of weeks ago. And we'll, we'll do an in-person version of that. Uh, the digital version, so to speak, the, the um, Zoom version will actually just be four lectures, talks that I'll give in the evenings and uh, we'll do that in the sort of webinar format, zoom format. And, um, and we're, we're doing that in the evening just to kind of try to draw uh, a little slightly different audience. So if you're interested in all of that, if you're kind of subscribed to our um, newsletter or to our just update uh, email updates, you'll, you'll see more about that as the semester approaches, but that gives you all sort of a heads up as to what we have going on. Um, and, um, anyway, so I, I won't give too much more of a, of a plug. Uh, Illich is a really interesting thinker that I, that I think is also pretty vital for us at this moment. Uh, so I'll write a few more sort of blurbs about what the class will cover. Uh, so you can look for that in any case. Um, so Mike, yeah, go ahead, Michael. So yes. I know I missed the first part. When is it going to happen in the spring? Do you know? Um, so yeah, good question. I think that my class will start a little bit later into the semester, maybe late January. I think Dr. Horner's classes uh, will begin a little sooner than that, uh, maybe mid-January. Uh, we haven't set that start date. Um, okay. Yeah, it's not firm yet, but, but my guess will be mid-January for Dr. Horner's um, late January, possibly even uh, first week of February for, for my class, which will be a little bit uh, shorter. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so let's, um, yeah, let's dive in and, and wrap this up. Um, I, I thought what I would do, so we've been all over the place uh, in some respects, uh, no pun intended, all over the place, but we've, we've been on, uh, I, yes, I know. Um, so we've been on the, um, the subject of place, obviously that's been our focus. I, I was actually, I think, speaking with uh, Lauren or uh, Lauren and Dr. Horner recently, and she was She's been part of both of our classes and, and kind of described my class as, you know, one theme that we've sort of turned and looked at from different perspectives throughout um, throughout the semester. And I, and I think that's about right. Try to kind of shine um, a different kind of light each um, each time around on, on our experience of place and uh, turned it from different perspectives to see different aspects of it. 
so there's there's no really neat way for me to summarize all of that or to draw that all to some kind of fine point or um, you know conclusion. What I thought I would do today is, is talk about this opposition of two ways of, of being in place or relating to place that I have for uh, for a while now sort of thought of in terms of um, the the stance of the tourist versus the the stance of the pilgrim. And so I'll, I'll kind of develop that in, in just a moment. Um, and and I, at the outset here, though, I, I do want to sort of put a question before us. Um, and, I, and indeed, I guess two questions, and I mentioned these at the end of last week, and we didn't have time to, to delve into them um, very much at all, but I thought that we might uh, maybe begin with this. And, and the questions were essentially, uh, you know, what um, what does place require of us? Or what, what do we, first, what do we require of a place? So one of the ways that we have been thinking uh, at the study center of, of just everything we do uh, is by way of, of, of the question of human flourishing, right? So what is required for human flourishing? That's a very broad question. It admits of a lot of different kinds of answers. It, it, it raises a lot of different sorts of specific questions, um, some of which we've talked about this semester, even just sort of obliquely. But so one way of putting the the matter of place before us is, is to ask this question of, of what do we require of place, right? In order to flourish as the, the sorts of creatures we are. And that's one of the sorts of things we've been getting at, I think, throughout this semester, or trying to get at throughout this semester. So what do we um what do we require of a place? What do we need from place? And then another uh, I guess it's really uh, the kind of thing where it's two sides of the same coin. Another way of, of looking at that or another question we could ask that's sort of similar is what does place require of us? Um, and that one entails our needs and the other sort of entails our responsibilities uh, in a sense. That's one way of maybe putting the difference uh, between those two questions. So I'm happy to maybe just pause for a moment, reflect on those. I'm not sure if you've given those questions any um any thought, uh, at least in that, maybe in that particular way or maybe in a different way. And, and again, I'm happy to just sit on that for a second, um, maybe endure even just a little bit of silence as you think about those two questions. And if you have any, any thoughts on either of them, uh, I'd be happy to sort of entertain those and maybe talk about that for a little bit um, and then maybe move on um, to this question of the tourists and the pilgrim in, in just a little bit. But yeah, there you have that. Let me see. let me give you some time to to think or reflect on that, and feel free to chime in. Can you say the first part again. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, the the first question is is asking, you know, what do we need of a place, or what do we require? And um, and again, I haven't, you know, the background to that is, is simply the question of the good life or human flourishing, whatever language you want to use uh, to get at that. Um, but as we think about place and, and, you know, as maybe we reflect on some of the um, issues that we've raised throughout this, this, this class, um, what can we say that we need from, from place? And, uh, and it doesn't have to be a, a tremendously profound answer here. Um, or even necessarily something we have talked about, yeah. just something that might have occurred to you. I think, real quick, one thing is just that, like, 
it stays mostly the same. Um, and not in some like, you know, never going to change way, but that like, you know, if I drive to work every day and, it, and it's vastly different every time I'm going to go crazy. Cause I'm like, what is this place? Like, I thought I knew the way to work, you know, you know, what's happening. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's something that doesn't happen, right? Things don't just like change day to day that fast, like the buildings and the trees and stuff. But Yeah. I mean, I've thought along similar lines, right? So, the, you know, if, if I were in your shoes and, and I'm asked this question, I think my first um, response would be something along what you suggested, Michael, some measure of continuity, right? Some measure of stability with without falling into the trap of, um, of of just wanting the status quo to remain what it is or, or prohibiting any kind of change or development or novelty, right? Which is also in its own way stultifying. Uh, you know, the only things that don't change are dead things, right? So as long as you're alive, you know, some measure of change um, is important and good. Uh, and so we don't, I don't want to, you know, in saying that, that, it seems as a, a measure of stability, a measure of continuity is good and necessary. That shouldn't be mistaken for, for saying that things ought never to change, right? Um, some things need to change. Um, some measure of dynamism is necessary and healthy. And so I guess the, that, that question is, um, what kind of change at what rate? Um, and, and, um, and for whose sake? Right. And who determines the nature of the change? What kind of change? Right. So, so it's, a, it's a question of quality, uh, and scale and pace, uh, rather than simply a question of, of change or no change. Right. Um, your example is interesting, right? Because it is, it's an exaggerated, uh, you know, example. You're right to say that, you know, my, my route to work uh, even though my route presently actually does have a lot of construction, always at a slightly different place each day as I drive in from, from the west part of town. Um, but, but it, it remains relatively stable, but we can, we can exaggerate that to sort of make the point, right? If it did change every day, right? If, if somehow the roads were laid out slightly differently and I had to navigate, consciously sort of navigate my way to work each, each time, this would be disorienting. It would be sort of a suck on my, cognitive um, resources, uh, it, it would be unsettling, right? Um, and so I guess that if, if we sort of take that as an exaggerated case of what may in fact happen in more subtle ways, right? So if there is this kind of, uh, it, you know, if we pass this threshold where the pace of change becomes disorienting, it's not unlike, right? So that exaggerated example gives us an illustration of that, right? Um, we feel disoriented. We feel a little bit of a loss. Things become, dra- you know, it's draining for us to sort of navigate our experience. Um, all of that to say that I think that that's, that's a good, um, a good response or a good way of, of, of beginning this conversation. The deep, the devil's in the details, as they say, of course, right? Who, again, what is that rate? What is that pace? Who determines it? Um, how do we evaluate um, the pace of pace and rate and quality of change, et cetera? Um, but fundamentally, that there is a measure of, of continuity seems important or stability. The, the, the ground has to remain, as we've said all along, really from our first week, relatively uh, stable and secure 
if we're going to have any hope of, of generating what we've called roots, you know, what Simone Bay called roots um, in that initial um, thought from the first class. So yeah, good. Similarly, uh, I know, <laughs> I feel like a few weeks ago, uh, I was critical of uh, like chain stores and places that are very uniform and the same. Um, but I was reminded uh, in the past couple of weeks of this article I read, which I kind of love because it reminds me of my hometown. It was in the Guardian a few years ago and it's called like, uh, you can sneer, but McDonald's is the glue that holds community, some communities together <laughs> and I can send it out, but it's like, it's a really interesting look at like, especially in rural uh, America, some uh, underdeveloped or poor places in America, how McDonald's is like the ultimate community gathering space uh, and maybe the only and just that's kind of like, you know, especially I think for old elderly, for widows, widowers, um, in some cases, it's this place where you know what you're going to get. You're going to get your, um, you know, cheap coffee and you're going to be there and it's always you're going to have your little table and you're going to meet with your little group every morning or every Saturday morning. And anyway, um, I can find it and send it out or you can Google it. But it, it's a really, I think, to sort of what Michael was saying, like that uniformity, it's always going to be there. It's all, it's always the same. And, um, even if the, the, you know, it's not the most aesthetically beautiful, um, restaurant you've ever been in or whatever, it's, uh, it's a place for connection and, um, a place where there's sort of a, yeah, memories or, or whatever that's been friendships that have been forged there or something like that, even in a place that I don't know, I might consider not as, not my favorite place to go when I think of a, a, a place. To go. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I know exactly the article you're talking about. Um, and, um, it's, yeah, th there's, there's a value to that sense of having, uh, a place that has a very low threshold of entry and, and, you know, there is, I think there is a tendency to, to, to sneer. Um, you know, at something like that and to kind of be dismissive of chains. And, um, you know, I guess the, the, the question is maybe, you know, what, how we got ourselves into a situation where, where it is, it is a McDonald's that does that, right. That has to do that. Uh, is that so bad, you know, to begin with, maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, I think of a, there was a, um, where I used to live in, in central Florida, um, you know, it, well, I didn't live in Oviedo, but close to Oviedo, my church was in, in this little town called Oviedo. It, it really was not that little anymore by the time I left. Um, and I, I, there was one place in particular that was a little diner in downtown Orlando or downtown. <laughs> um, and I'm, right now I cannot believe, um, that I've forgotten its name. Uh, but anyway, it was a, <laughs> we would go after church frequently and, and I would meet a lot of uh, folks there over the years. Uh, and it was, it was a little dive. Um, I mean, it was, I can't say it was any bigger than the downstairs area here. And it was a little, you know, it's just kind of greasy breakfast food, breakfast food. <laughs> and, and there was this one old lady that had been there forever and ever, you know, it was a wait staff. And it, it was, it was kind of, you know, a lovely little place. Um, and yeah, there were little plaques where, you know, said, said this table's reserved for this group on Saturday mornings. And there was a bunch of old men that would gather there. 
all of that to say is that is exactly the sort of place you described. Uh, then they uh, decided they needed to kind of beautify that stretch of, of the downtown area, widen the road. They bulldozed that place got you know bulldozed, and it and it reopened down the road in this very new, flashy, fancy space. Mm-hmm. Uh, that utterly wrecked in some respects <laughs> the ambiance of the of, of the place, and so it um, that there that there are places like that um, that remain steady over time. Um, that's that that are allow people to gather. That are the places where community gets formed and takes shape. Um, yeah, that's good. That's a good example of that. I was thinking that uh, if if there's variety in a community, I could go to the McDonald's or I could go to the Greasy Spoon or or I could have a picnic. Uh, it, to have those opportunities um, available makes a place uh, more inviting. Yeah. Not just uh, uh, that it has a restaurant, but I could find all kinds of restaurants, some affordable, some that have to save up to go to, mm-hmm. but they're available to uh, to me and to others who appreciate similar things and maybe different things. Yeah, and so as with uh, natural ecosystems, so with social ones, right, that there is a kind of diversity, yeah. uh, a baseline diversity that's important for the health of, of, of that community. Yeah. That's a good, good point. I think the coffee shops in town, I mean, you always think of Starbucks, but there are, any number of uh, little dives for coffee that are interesting, including uh, Pascal's. And, right. and uh, it, it's nice to have all of those uh, opportunities available. To, it lends an, an air of mystery to the community that there's always something new to discover that's worthwhile. Yeah, along that line, as I continue to sort of discover Gainesville, um, I, I have not ever been to the Fourth Avenue Food Park, I guess, that, that area down there with little coffee shop in the um in the streamline uh it's nice whatever it is. yeah uh and so that it, i stumbled upon that because i was looking for pizza and somebody recommended um satchels yeah. Satch squared yeah. right that's right and so i stumbled upon that area and, and it, you're right there is a there there's something um you know inviting about that kind of diversity and, and branching out beyond the you know, I got a Starbucks in the corner and that's where I always go, but that there is this diversity and that you, you have, um, that the little pockets of the community each have access to something like this, right? That I don't have to drive 30 minutes to get to a coffee shop where people within that sort of space can, um, can congregate. I I was reading recently about, uh, an initiative, a public policy initiative, and it had some name like the 15 minute city or something like that. And, and the idea was to, you know, design, um, or not just urban space, maybe it was urban spaces in particular, but, uh, design, design cities in such a way that you could find what you needed within 15 minutes. Um, I forget if that was sort of walking distance or, or commuting distance, right? But that within these little sort of 15 minute, um, what to call them pockets of a, of a larger urban setting, you know, you find the things you, you needed in order to generate the sense of, of belonging to this space, you know, that you belong to a community, you frequent the same community. I, 
it was recently, and I forget if I had mentioned this here or not, um, writing about, uh, you know, Jane Jacobs uh, describing sidewalks, city sidewalks as spaces where you would uh, see the same people because they're all kind of coming down to the sidewalk to, to go to wherever they, they work or live. And you have a community grocer, community coffee shop perhaps, and you frequent these places along with the same core group of people that live in this city block. I think I talked about this in the in-person class and that you, you forge a, um, a baseline of knowledge and recognition. And, and it's not that you are friends with all these people necessarily, but you see them, you have these micro interactions with them mm-hmm. and it builds up a sense of community, a sense of belonging that, that is vital. And, and the difference that the point of contrast for Jacobs was the, you know, she's writing the, 20th century with the emerging suburbs where, you know, you, you live in your home, you get in your car, you commute uh, to a distant place, um, and you never have the opportunity to sort of build up this sense of knowing the people around you because you've sort of enclosed yourself in um, in your, your home, then your car, and you drive to a very different, everybody drives to very different places, and then you come back, and your home is basically just a place where you sleep. Um, and no social life sort of emerges around it, uh, or at least it's very hard for one to do so. Um, yeah, good. If we have time, I also had some thoughts. Say it again, David, I'm sorry. Oh, oh sorry, if, I don't have my microphone with me today. Um, if we have time, I also had some thoughts. Yeah, go ahead, no, please. Um, so first I thought you would ask, what does place require of us? And then I realized you asked, what do we require of place? But then I, as I, when I switched and started writing down the other, um, I noticed that there's there's something that is in common, um, which is basically to know it. Um, and so I have been toggling around with the idea lately of us being explorers, so to speak, um, those who walk on the land um, and those who are called from one place to another, who uh, search it out and who will cultivate it when we come to a new location. Um, and when we do that, we have to, in a sense, receive it on its own terms. But Tim, something you brought up with, it's nice to have a lot of a variety of things around you. It's, it brings, it calls into question, can I conform to this? Um, because mm. we force the land to conform to ourselves. We're sort of, that's not a, yeah, not, I, not, I wouldn't call it cultivating the land. Um, but if we can conform to it, then we can inhabit it and build a home. And I think Madison brought up community. And so building a home to me is really about making a community. And as far as the place itself, the place is more about the particulars of it, but it's, we all go to this one location or this other location, or we know, I'm thinking back to my camp days, we walk down this dirt path. These are the types of holes that are in it. Um, (laughs) And the first thing that, I would do whenever I came to a new church, um, like if, when I was younger, I was, we were looking for a new church at some point in my youth. Um, the first thing my sister and I would do is we'd run everywhere in the church that we could to find all the different rooms and all the different locations, um, get a sense of what this church feels like, like it's a home and really to know it in it. Like that's not a full way of knowing it, but as we build community there to know it in a deeper way. Um, and so I think that that's the summary of like a, a good summary of what I think it means to what we require of a place is really to, to know it. 
and there are certain acts involved in that. Yeah. And, and that's very good. And I, I think that I did ask both forms of those questions. So, um, it, yeah, that we think about what, what for, I, first, not because of priority, but just because of how it came to my mind, you know, what do we require of a place? But then also what, what is it the place requires of us and, and to come to this point of saying to know it, um, and to be open to what it has for us and to not immediately seek to conform the place to our needs, but rather to uh, think about what the place requires of us, asks of us, you know, how we might conform ourselves to it. Um, and, and if it is, um, and I guess it's, it is, you really, you t- it's hard to not toggle back and forth, right? Because if, if we are going to give ourselves to a place, but it has taken a kind of inhumane shape, then we can't do that without uh, doing harm to ourselves, to our families, to our communities. So, so if, if there is a place that, you know, has, um, if we, if we are willing to allow ourselves to, con, you know, to, to conform ourselves to a place, then what we require of that place is for it to be humane in its scale, humane in its ordering. Um, and that there is this, then the symbiosis where we can give ourselves to it and it, it nourishes us. Uh, but, but then we do have to give ourselves to it. Um, and so, you know, it's as if we have this choice between, building places that allow us then to give ourselves to it. And then that, that's, you know, certain fittingness. We can speak of a certain proportionality between the human and the place where they fit and they each sort of mutually reinforce the good of the other. Or, or else, you know, we can build places that are, um, how shall we put it, inhospitable, right, to to human beings, to human families, to human communities. And then we, we are unable to give ourselves to those places. It wouldn't be good for us to, to, to conform ourselves to those places. And so we remain always there sort of superficially connected, abstractly connected, um, unable to give ourselves in a way that is good um, because the, the place itself doesn't, w- wouldn't sustain that kind of giving. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I wish I had a sort of neat way of, of labeling those two kinds of relationships, right? But they do seem to to be very different. Um, but they require in, in each case, so it's a pairing of of relationships. And in each case, you know, one kind of shape that the material sort of infrastructure takes requires us and invites us to relate to in a specific way and rewards us for that kind of relation. And in the other, it, it doesn't, regardless of what kind of attitude or stance or desires we bring to it. Um, yeah. And, and that actually is a nice segue um, to this, to how I have thought about this, this way of thinking in, in terms of the opposition of the, of the tourists and the pilgrim. And I'll sort of offer this to you as, as just a, a particular model um, that has been useful to me. And, and you can tell me how useful, um, you know, it may strike you. It, I, I began thinking about this way, about this way of, th- of framing our relationship to place when, when I literally was a tourist for a while. And that is, you know, when I took this sort of extended trip to Spain back in, um, I think it was around 2012. And I, I found myself with, um, with a case of camera eye. And so I'm a sort of tourist that <laughs> you know, like to take pictures and, um, I think this was one of the first long trips that I made, uh, with a, a really, you know, 
a competent digital camera that allowed me to take, if I so desired, you know, thousands of pictures. Um, you know, prior to that, 2006, I took an extended trip to the UK, but I had a 35 millimeter camera. So you, you had to be, um, you know, rather uh, modest in how many pictures you took, unless you were willing to carry a hundred rolls of film with you. Uh, so in any case, you know, I take this trip and I find myself, um, you know, I was in Barcelona for a while, uh, visited around, around Barcelona, different little towns and, and, um, there's a lot that's very inviting and picturesque. And, you know, I developed my little case of camera. And, and, and I began to sort of reflect upon this um, experience and, and, and was thinking in terms of, of what, it, what it meant for me to be in this place, in this mode, and, and what I was trying to capture, right? You know, what is it that I'm trying to, to get in these pictures? And, um, and I thought about how, how visually oriented the experience of, of, of tourism in this way could be, right? That, and we even sort of talk about, you know, seeing sites, right? So that foregrounds the, the visual aspect of it. Um, you know, when, when, you know, tourist guides sort of tell you the places that you have to see. Um, we might say something like, well, you know, if, we ha- if you haven't seen this, you haven't really been here. And all of that has a sort of visual orientation. I thought, well, you know, maybe that's part of the problem that we're sort of so visually oriented, oriented that we miss out on the tastes and the smells uh, and even sort of the texture of a place. And you began to sort of try to note, um, you know, you, you know, even to the point of making myself sort of touch um, a building, especially if it was, you know, an older building um, that had a, a layered history to it. You know, there's one place in Barcelona, this old district that has roots in the, in the Roman, uh, in Roman antiquity, uh, overlaid with sort of medieval structures and then modern structures and all of this is sort of present there. And, um, and, and then it still seemed though that I was, I was trying to capture, right? That there was a sense in which I began to think of what the mode I was in as this mode of consumption. And, and, and it, the, it occurred to me that when we think about tourism, you know, being tourists, we think about going somewhere, but that there was also this sort of temporal dimension to it because the, to be a tourist is to be somewhere else, but only for a limited amount of time, right? Um, I, you know, I, I will only be there for this weekend, or I will only be here for a week. And so you immediately begin to think about a place that you're in, but that you will leave. And so then I think that, you know, at least for my, uh, in my experience, that, that gave me the sense of wanting to capture and keep something and somehow hoard it almost, right? to get it in such a way that it will be accessible to me later. And so inevitably, right, I'm, I'm experiencing this, this, um, this time as a consumer, right, whether that I'm consuming images that I want to capture and take for myself to look at later um, or whether I'm trying to be more holistic in my consumption and capture the smell somehow or capture the feel of the place or whatever. Now, fortuitously, serendipitously, or providentially, whatever the case may be, right before I left, I had I'd seen this um, movie called, um, I think it's called The Way. I actually can't remember. It's a, it's a little um, sort of, it's not even really an artsy film, but it, it certainly didn't go to theaters, I don't think. And it was um, uh, written and directed by Emilio Estevez, and his father, Charlie, uh, not Charlie, uh, but Martin Sheen was in it. And they play a father and there's a father and son in real life and they play father and son in the movie, but um, the, the son, his part is very small. It is simply to die at the beginning of it. And he dies in Spain, uh, actually very near to where I was going. 
and his father, Martin, makes the journey to kind of pick up his ashes. But then he learns that the reason his son was there was to go on this ancient uh, or medieval pilgrimage route uh, that runs from just over the border of France um, across the Pyrenees and to the um, uh, Atlantic coast to a little town called, called Compostello, where um, the Apostle James is said to have been buried in a church in Compostello. And so this was a very famous, one of the most famous pilgrimage routes in, in medieval Europe. And it's um, still walked today with, with, you know, for sometimes very different motives than what a medieval pilgrim would have taken up, uh, taken up that route. And, um, and so the father decides he's going to sort of carry the ashes uh, and sort of have, help his son complete this journey posthumously, as it were, right? And so he, he gets on the way, and, and I forget how many miles, it's several hundred miles, and um, and he meets, a, a, you know, three or four other people that kind of make this journey with him. And they, um, it's an interesting little movie, and, and it's, it's curious, um, but it raises the question of how to authentically experience this, and they get into arguments about whether it's authentic to have, you know, modern hiking gear or to use credit cards or to, you know, stay in fancy hotels along the way. Um, but the point is, is that they all came to it as people who kind of do this sort of thing today tend to do. They all came to it with certain goals um, or aspirations or imagining, you know, that, you know, they were, they were after something. They were all after something. None of them get what they're after. But they're all nonetheless sort of transformed by the journey. Uh, and so I had this, this idea that then maybe the, the way to think about our relationship to place lies on this spectrum between the tourist who is essentially a consumer of place and the pilgrim who brings a very different um, attitude, it seems to me, uh, to a place, very different posture. And, it, it, you know, David, you, I say that your comments were a good segue because the fulcrum of it is this this question of whether we are focused chiefly on taking from a place what we want from it or else being open to the place transforming us right to to the in this case the the journey transforming us right so are we consuming or are we being consumed are we allowing ourselves to be consumed by the place transformed by the place and i think this is um Again, it, it, it's, it's remained for me a useful uh, model of thinking about how we might, the options that are presented to us when we think about how we might relate to a place. Um, because even when we say, I can imagine someone saying they, they care about place and are interested in place, but still what they are chiefly interested in is, is to almost consume as much of that place as possible and absorb the place into our projects of sort of self-fulfillment and, um, and self-presentation, right? It's still that we are bending the place to the needs of the self uh, rather than allowing the self to bend to the demands of the place. Um, and, and again, it, it matters, as we said a moment ago, what the nature of the place might be, right? Is it, is it a place that if we are to give ourselves over to it in this way, would sustain us, would be good for us, would allow us to flourish as human beings, or would it eat us alive, right? And so it's not as if we can sort of uncritically just give ourselves over to a place in this way. Uh, so I don't want to romanticize this sort of attitude, 
but rather that um, we, we ought to be willing to do that. And if we do that with a place that can, can meet us or sustain us or draw out from us what is good, then in that symbiosis of place and, 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 and our giving ourselves over to it, then something good will emerge, right? It would be an experience of place that is um, healthy is maybe one way of putting it. I, I prefer just simply the moral term, right? It is, it would be good, um, good for the place, good for us. It, it would reward our, our uh, willingness to set aside our own prerogatives and we would find a measure of satisfaction in that. So let me, let me pause there. That's sort of, again, you know, how, uh, uh, kind of, um, you know, sort of biographical um, take on, on this, the emergence of this, you know, this opposition of the, the way of the tourist and the way of the, of the pilgrim. Um, but I'm curious if, if you find that helpful or fruitful or useful or, or what it makes you think of or, or where, you know, where we might go from there um, in terms of, of thinking about place. I just think of um, two things. One is like the, right? I think I think you're right. It's like this middle ground area. Although we're referred to as pilgrims, right? Like on this earth, there's this very the very. I mean, the in Jeremiah, right? Like, settle down in Babylon, even like. And that's not even necessarily like a great place for them, you know. Like the people there, you know. I think most of them hated them. Um, but it was like settle down and, you know, produce goodness while you're there. Mm. Um, yeah. That's, that's really good. Yeah. Because the, to, to Bruggy, I actually did want to kind of come back to this, uh, more explicitly theological or spiritual question. Um, and, and I gesture toward it at the beginning of the class by, by looking at those early chapters of Genesis and the way in which Cain refused to be sort of an alien, uh, in the land, a stranger in the land. Um, how his desire to settle was a kind of rebellion and act of defiance. Um, and, and then also how the language of the New Testament tended to speak of us, uh, of the believer, of the Christian as a stranger, an alien, a pilgrim. Um, how throughout the medieval period, the, the defining characteristic of the Christian life um, was that we we were on the way, right? That we were those who were on the way. Um, and so that, you know, in, in seeking to find the right relationship to place, we needed to also avoid this, the, the temptation to, idolize place in such a way that we forgot that we were people who were fundamentally always on the way, but that to speak of being on the way spiritually was not then an excuse to remain always detached to place. In other words, that in, in what we might think of um, as an ideal situation, the needs of, of our, of our body, the needs of, the self for continuity, um, the needs of the spirit, even the soul for continuity. I mean, Bay did talk about this in terms of the needs of the soul, um, would be, would be met by a right relationship to place. And that 
yet we needed to always remember that we are in this sort of already not yet and as theologians tend to speak about the the condition the station of the christian presently um where our dangers you know we have this twin danger of either making ourselves sort of too at home in our present condition or else so alienating ourselves that we lose touch with with the fact that we are still human beings made for this world um and then there there are two ways it seems to me of going wrong of of, of settling the, the the point is we're we're called it seems right now to abide attention and we are tempted always to sort of resolve not to abide attention but to resolve it in one direction or the other and that rather what we need to do is sort of abide it that is to remain cognizant of the fact that we are on the way that there is a not yet to our condition uh but that there is there is an already right there is a world we are called to um and not to escape it but as in the example of the of the um Jews in exile in Babylon that we're called to to still serve it um to to seek for the good of those that we are called to be amongst um and and that tension that tension of of giving ourselves to a place but not so wholeheartedly that we lose our our hope or that hope becomes um insignificant to us or unimportant to us um that that that's a good a good reminder michael that that biblical moment right that biblical his, historical um situation does serve as a good model for us any other thoughts or comments about about that um that place that we find ourselves in especially um when we think about this from a theological perspective we think about this as christians i guess i i keep going back and i i don't remember or don't know the context so somebody else could sort of fill in or say if it doesn't apply but i keep going back to the like augustine uh quote about like our our hearts being restless until uh, we find rest in, in god and i guess sort of that idea of restlessness as sort of the um being sort of the ditch you describe of being sort of constantly seeking out self-fulfillment uh you know on the on the road or i started reading i think it was in the james k smith's book i started reading i haven't finished it but where he taught he compares it to on the road and um Kerouac and all of that you know we're going out to seek whatever it is self-actualization or fulfillment um and uh yeah so i i just keep going back to that i don't really fully know how that fits but in my mind sort of that idea of sort of restlessness versus sort of rootedness maybe is is kind of a way to think about it yeah no i i think so i haven't read uh that latest book by by smith on augustine and um you know I'm, i i i certainly am eager to do so but i think you're right that this is this is very much part of what um it's part of the picture here it, it that restlessness um it it goes back to how we t- we we thought about place in terms of a very concrete sort of relationship to the literal surroundings that i find myself in but then also we speak of it as you know finding um a sense of home in the deepest sense of that right uh and that maybe the 
the the way the formulation that occurs to me, Madison, as I you know hear your comments, is that if we find our home, the, our first task is to find our home in communion with God, right? That that our fundamental restlessness, our fundamental uprootedness and alienation is a spiritual alienation from God. And that if we are able to heal that alienation, um, if, if that, if we find our, the, the rest that we long for in God, in that way that God, that Augustine counsels us to, you know, to find, uh, you know, that we're restless until we find our rest in God. If we, if we do that, then we are in a better position to relate well to God. To, to, excuse me, to place, right? Because we won't ask of place more than it can give. And, and we will love place in the right way. I mean, this is really such a fundamental insight into, into the whole of the moral life, right? That our temptation, until we have truly found our rest in God, is to look to all sorts of earthly realities um, to satisfy desires that can only be properly satisfied by God. But that we will always, if unless we find our ultimate satisfaction in God, we will always look for that satisfaction in things that cannot give it, right? Whether it's a relationship to place, whether it's um, a, a spouse, uh, in, you know, in a kind of idealized marriage life that we might um, picture when we are single, or even when we're married and don't have what we think marriage is going to be, right? We make an idol out of marriage. We make an idol out of family. We make an idol out of work. We make an idol out of out of a, a place in the context of this, you know, this class, that we always think that if we have this thing, and if we, what we think that thing will give us is what we can only find in God, then we will always be disappointed. We'll, be, we'll remain restless, in essence, right? It's, I've likened it to the, you know, the, the image of the person in the desert who sees a mirage, and then once they get to it, that mirage vanishes, right? Um, but if we find our rest in God, then we can find the penultimate but good satisfactions in these other earthly created goods, right? It's not that a marriage is not good or that, uh, you know, children are not good or that a good uh, finding a vocation in life is not good. It's that they are always penultimate goods. And if we ask them to be ultimate goods, they will, we, our relationship to those things will always be disordered. We will serve those things poorly. We will be become embittered because those things do not give us what we want of, out of them. But of course, they're not designed to give us. None of those things are designed to be for us what God alone can be for us. All right. And so, you know, maybe that, that ordering of our relationship, first and foremost, loving God above all else, only then will we be allowed to love place in the way that it ought to be loved. And then unless we do that, we'll always have a kind of disordered relationship uh, to place. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. Thank you for the vocal. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, and that brings us right to 1235. Uh, and so that, Seems about as good a place as I'm likely to have us end up. Um, <laughs> I, won't, I won't try to do it. Um, but, um, yeah, I can certainly take any, any last thoughts or comments you all have. Happy to, to give you all the last word.
we are destined to uh, abide in a new heaven and a new earth. We know what earth is. None of us have ever uh, had an uh, abode in heaven. But I suspect that the new earth will have enough similarities to what we abide in now that it will be recognizable and, and uh, superb in every way. At least we have that image before us to know what a, uh, a new earth might be like. Yeah. Yes. And also, I kind of think of it, uh, going off what, Tim, what you just said, I might argue that in a sense, we do have our abode in heaven and not that we experience it in the ready way that we will and hope to, but in two senses, in the one sense, from the beginning, God breathed life into, into Adam. And so since that is heaven inside the, uh, the man or inside the dust in another sense, well, we fell from that. Um, but then God's raised us up, raised us up with Christ and gave us his spirit. And so in that sense, heaven is in our hearts. And so we're sort of like these walking vessels. Yeah. For yeah. Whatever you need. Tem- temples, right. Um, mm-hmm. Which suggests, you know, the, the, um, the intersection of the earthly and the heavenly, right. This is what the temple was always intended to be. And then, so, we are the people of God now because of the indwelling of the spirit have, you know, carry within us that intersection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Um, and thank you all. You know, this is obviously our first venture into the zoom sort of setting this semester. Um, it, it's, it's less than ideal and not as satisfying as being in person. Certainly not in person. I uh, enjoying a good lunch together. It would have been, um, but uh, glad, glad to have you all.